He's been our missionary to uh, Tanzania. He and uh, Suki, his wife, had to return due to uh, her pregnancy and the birth of the twins. Uh, pray for them as they seek God's uh, direction for the future. Uh, we pray that uh, God's will be accomplished in their lives and that they be used to bring him great honor and glory. Matt, Lord bless. Good morning. Uh, if we could just pause and uh, bow for prayer uh, before we get started, that would be great. Father, Son, and Spirit, all the earth deserves to be silent before you. Uh, We gather here not out of vain repetition. Um, We collect ourselves here together not uh, for simple uh, social experiences. We come here because we desperately need you. We desperately need each other. And we cannot separate any relationship that we have with you with any relationship we have with those sitting around us. And so we are here because we need you. For the good of your people, for the sake of your world, and for the glory of God, would you allow this time uh, to be meaningful? If, If anything of any value is to be accomplished today, your Spirit must be present. He has to be here, or we have just gone through vain repetitions. Deliver us from that vanity. Deliver us from that hollow existence. We need You. Make us different people when we leave this afternoon. We ask it and plead for it in the name of the Son and by the power of the Spirit. Hear these requests for You are our only hope not to be found in any man. Amen. It's really, really good to be with you all again this morning. Uh, It's particularly exciting. Uh, I feel like there's a sense in which me and my wife, our life, that there's this huge, thick fog that's been over our lives for the past eight months. And I feel like it's beginning to lift just a little bit. Uh, Visibility is still difficult. my wife and I, have uh, we were evacuated from East Africa, a rural village that we were living in, in June. My wife arrived due to pregnancy complications, spent four and a half weeks uh, in a hospital, admitted. Twins uh, were delivered by C-section. They spent nearly seven weeks in a NICU uh, down in Lancaster. And then they got discharged early September and have been on oxygen, supplemental oxygen, and heart monitors for nearly the past five months. Um, It's been like a fog hanging over our shoulders. And this Monday, we got permission not only to get off the oxygen, but also to bring our girls publicly around people. And uh, we are just thankful that this is the first time in eight months that my whole family has been able to be at church together. And uh, we are just thankful for your prayers. Celebrate God's faithfulness. He, He has been good to us in ways that we can't even explain. Um, they would be here in the service, except for my little Abigail would participate a little too much, if you know what I mean. Um, so for the sake of all, they're waiting in a, another room. 
Um, but I would love to introduce you to them after the service. And you know that that is typically uh, how we are feeling right now is really in a sense what Habakkuk was going through. You see, we're on a, a trek, a journey, a pilgrimage to understand what mature faith is like. What is it to be strong in your faith, growing in godliness, and durable in your belief and trust in God? And we said that Habakkuk, his story, will help us through that journey. But before we get to chapter 3, which is the chapter of faith, we have to trek through chapters 1 and chapters 2. And last week we looked at the fact that the overwhelming question for Habakkuk, as he begins his journey, he has to deal with the problem of evil and injustice in the world. He comes face to face with with the fact that things are not the way they should be. Everything is broken. Things are chaotic around him. And we said that Habakkuk had to learn how to bear the weight of the world on his shoulders. And we said that he had to do that in three ways. First, he had to learn how to lament. Not just have the the permission to lament, but the obligation to lament the presence of evil in the world. And secondly, we said that he has to also see his particular injustice around him as a lens to see the injustice in the rest of the world. That God is not just concerned about our backyard, but the whole globe that we live in. And thirdly, we said that then once we look at the world and its injustice, it's supposed to be like a mirror. It reflects back on us and we are to see our own guilt and culpability with the fact that injustice is here, part and parcel parcel because we have a hand in it. And it was heavy. It was like a thick fog hanging over our shoulders that we weren't supposed to rush away from too soon. And as we move into chapter 2, that fog begins to lift. The, The visibility begins to come back to us because you see, if we hang out if we reside in this overwhelming, burdensome, gloom, kind of doom-like life that only focuses on the fact of injustice in the world, you and I will do one of two things. You see, we'll see the fact that the wicked seem to prevail. We'll see the fact that the unrighteous seem to be the majority vote. They seem to always be the winning party. And we'll do one of two things. Either you and I We'll do everything possible to isolate ourselves from that injustice. Everything possible to separate ourselves from the world. Or, we'll do everything possible to indulge in that injustice. You see, in the midst of injustice in the world, there's only seemingly two options. Either we hide ourselves from it, knowing that it's not part of God's plan, or... Well, if they're the majority party, let's just join the bandwagon. And isolation and indulgence become the two options. If the fog doesn't lift. And what we have in chapter 2 of Habakkuk is we have God being gracious to Habakkuk and having this fog lift from him. And whereas in chapter 1 we we dealt with an oracle, a burden from the Lord, now we're going to learn about a vision, a revelation that's going to help Habakkuk say, there's another way. There's another possible life that you and I can live. In fact, this is the question. It's quite simple. In the midst of injustice, 
What is the best possible life you could live? In the midst of wickedness, what is the most satisfying life you could ever live? Is it to go isolate yourself from the world, or is it to indulge in wickedness? And God's going to say, neither. The best possible life, the most satisfying life, the most full life you could ever live is the righteous life. So this is the point. Chapter 2 says, the righteous life is the best life. The just life is the best life. It's superior to isolating yourself from all the world. And it's superior to indulging in wickedness. And this is what we're going to learn from Habakkuk chapter 2. What we're going to get in Habakkuk chapter 2 is a vision, and then we're going to get five illustrations on how the righteous life is the best life. We'll get a vision and then five illustrations on why this just life is the best possible life you could ever live. The most full life you could ever live. As we look in chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we see that Habakkuk is coming out of the fog of this uh, this la- lament, uh, of this burden, of this oracle. And he says that if my life is going to be anything meaningful, I need God to speak to me again. So he says in verse 1, I stand on my guard post, I station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what He will speak to me, how I may reply when I am reproved. Because for Habakkuk, If there is no further revelation of God, he might as well go hide himself from the world. Or, he might as well just join the majority party of injustice and violence and wickedness if there's no other voice from God. And so he he perches himself on like a tower, on a watch post. Kind of like uh, the the ways they used to do battle in the old days. Uh, They would position someone on a high tower who would be able to see the enemy army as they advanced toward them. And it would give them great notice, notification, early notice that the enemy was coming. And so Habakkuk says, I wait for you like a a, a watchtower soldier. I anxiously expect you to speak to me again. And he says, in response, the Lord says this. In verse 2, Then the Lord answered and said to me, Record the vision, inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come, it will not delay. And what God wants to know, He hasn't given Habakkuk the vision yet. Verses 2 through 3 are not the vision, they're not this revelation, but God wants Habakkuk to know something. He says, this vision is something that you're to record and inscribe on tablets, so that the one who has this may run and tell it to other places in the world. So, like a messenger who receives a message from one king, he will then take that message and he will run and Take the recorded message and give it to another king. So, God wants Habakkuk to know that this vision is not just for you, and not just for Judah, but it is for all places. And he says in verse 3, the vision is for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal. It will not fail. It tarries, but wait for it. What you are about to hear in verses 4-5, through 
God says, is for all peoples, all places, all times. Not simply for Habakkuk. Not simply for Judah. Not simply for the evil Babylon that is about to invade and exile Judah. But it's for everybody who ever lives on the face of the earth. All peoples, all places, all times. Verses 4 and 5, we get the vision. And this is what God wants Habakkuk to know. The best possible life. Verse 4, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. Really, the vision is uh, confined to verse 4, and verse 5 becomes an explanation of it. And this is the vision that God wants Habakkuk to know. The proud one, his soul is not right within him. But the righteous will live by faith. What he wants Habakkuk to know, first of all, is that there is a proud person. The word translated proud in the NASB actually has this idea of being puffed up, swollen. Or maybe you've seen pictures of uh, children or uh, even adults who live in third world countries. And you see their stomachs kind of bloated. Uh, and the reason why their stomachs are bloated is, is from malnutrition. That there's, you would think that they are obese, you would think that they've eaten a lot because their stomachs look big, but really the reality is, it's from lack of something, it's from lack of substance that their stomach is distended. That's the imagery. And some scholars actually debate whether it's related to another word uh, that has the idea of a tumor. A mass of substance on your body that has no good purpose, no benevolent function at all. That's the proud person. He's inflated like an air balloon, but all he's got is hot air. And this is his life in verse 5. He's going to rely on wine. He's so proud of himself, pretentious, that the wine that he uses will betray him so that he doesn't stay at home. He becomes in his Pride becomes restless. But he also enlarges his appetite like Sheol. The, the word Sheol is, is the word for death. He becomes not only restless, but he actually becomes an object of destruction for those around him. This is the proud man. The one who's self-confident. The one who seems to be full, seems to be filled with substance, but on the inside, he's nothing like a malnourished stomach. Nothing like an inflated balloon that has air to fill its gaps. But look in verse 4. The righteous, the righteous will live by his faith. The best possible life that we could ever live in the midst of injustice and wickedness and violence in this world is the righteous life. What does it mean to be righteous? This is very important for us to understand as we read the rest of the chapter. And I want to propose to you three aspects 
of righteousness that the Old Testament authors and even the New Testament authors will ascribe to. When they speak of righteousness and the righteous man, what do they mean? I think for the majority of us, even myself, when I hear the word righteous, I think perfection. I think flawless. I think God Himself, who has no mistake that if you're righteous, it even extends to you not stubbing your toe on the walkway or slipping on a piece of ice, that you're righteous, you're, you're just perfect. All around, no mistakes. That's not quite the perspective and picture of what righteousness means in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament. I want to propose to you three aspects of righteousness that help us understand this great, full life as opposed to the proud life that teaches us how we are to live. The first aspect is moral righteousness. The fact that Noah, in Genesis 6, chapter 9, says uh, Noah is called not only a righteous man, but he was blameless in God's sight. The idea of blameless and righteousness means that morally, ethically, you live such an upright life that there's nothing to accuse you of. That you're not perfect, but, but you're blameless with no blatant, glaring contradictions about how you live. You are not a living paradox. You are not a contradiction. You have integrity to you. That's the idea. Moral righteousness. The righteous man is someone who is filled with integrity. But there's also a second idea of righteousness traced through the Old Testament, and that is the idea of not only a moral righteousness, but a judicial righteousness. To, to almost be standing in a courtroom, having someone accuse you of a crime, and the judge say, not guilty. So, not only are you righteous if you are filled with integrity, if you live ethically and morally and are blameless, but also you are righteous if before God, and before man, you are declared innocent. Someone says to you, you're a liar, and you say, I didn't lie. Someone says, you're a coveter, and you say, I didn't covet. Someone says to you, you have uh, stolen and are a robber, and you say, I haven't stolen, I'm not a thief. You are righteous in your integrity. You are righteous, but also in your innocence. Not only by doing right things, but by not doing the unrighteous things. But what I want to focus on is there is a third aspect of righteousness throughout the Scriptures. And this, we, we, we think of a moral righteousness, we think of a judicial righteousness, we think of what we will call this is a social righteousness. This is the idea that not only are you upright, not only are you innocent, but now you actively go about the world influencing things to become right. If I can phrase it this way, to be righteous is to be right in your integrity. To be righteous is to be in the right in your innocence. And to be righteous is to set things right in your influence in the world. Let me say that again. To be righteous in Habakkuk's vision and in all of Scriptures, to be righteous is to be right in the integrity and the ethic of how you live. To be righteous is to be in the right and innocent of steering clear of 
godless action, of crime, of wickedness. But being righteous is also setting things right in the world around you. Where does this leave us? Let's look at, I would actually like you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 18. I want us to see this and read this just in a couple of verses. Ezekiel chapter 18. And we're going to see how this righteousness, this third aspect of righteousness, plays out. That we're righteous because we're innocent. We're righteous because we are moral. But we're also righteous because we set things right around us. Ezekiel chapter 18. Starting in verse 5. So the very important passage in which we glean some of, of this whole aspect of what righteousness is. In verse 5, God is saying, through Ezekiel, If a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness, and does not eat at the mountain shrines, or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, or defile his neighbor's wife, or approach a woman during her menstrual period, if a man does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, if he does not commit, adult, does not commit robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing, if he does not lend his money on interest or take increase, if he keeps his hand from iniquity, and executes true justice between man and man, if he walks in my statutes and my ordinances, so as to deal faithfully, he is a righteous and will live surely, declares the Lord God. In this passage, we have all three of these aspects combined. The fact that the righteous man is the person who will refrain from wickedness. The righteous is the person who will engage in godliness. But also, the righteous is the one who will actually set things right and influence the world to bring about righteousness in areas of the world in which it's not. That is the best possible life you and I could ever live. To be right, to be declared right before God, and then to actually move and work in the world to bring about righteousness where you live. So what does that mean? It seems kind of abstract. It seems kind of up in the clouds. What we're going to see in the next 15 verses is God is going to give Habakkuk five concrete illustrations on how this plays itself out. And we're going to find these illustrations in a particular kind of judgment speech called a woe oracle. Some of the things we have to understand about a woe oracle is that they're kind of humorous. They're kind of like a public taunt against an evil people about judgment that's going to come on them. And we're going to receive five oracles that are specifically directed to Babylon, but also have repercussions to Judah and to Habakkuk himself. And so, let's turn back to Habakkuk chapter 2 and look at these five illustrations. Real briefly, we're going to run through these. We could take a lot of time and discuss the intricacies of them. But five illustrations that say that the proud life is empty. The righteous life is the best possible life you could ever live. Morally righteous, judicially righteous, and socially righteous. He begins in verse 6. 
He says, Will not all of these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him? And say, here's the first woe. Woe to him who increases what is not his. For how long? And makes himself rich with loans. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them. He says, in summary, woe to those who increase and make themselves rich through robbery. Woe to you who embezzle and extort or deceive to make yourselves rich. Because in the end, you yourselves will be robbed. You see, Babylon was ready to loot and plunder and destroy Judah and take all of their money. And God says, woe to the person who thinks that wealth can be something that you can achieve through deception and robbery. Woe to you, because in reality, you, you will find yourself poor. One day, the very people that you deceived, one day, the very people that you robbed, they will awaken as if out of a slumber, they will arise and they will loot and plunder you. And in fact, what is so interesting in verse 8, he says, you have looted many nations, all the remainder of the peoples will loot you because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land. What is so interesting is that perhaps what is meant here is that the robbery, the theft, the Babylonians coming and basically pillaging the land, when that process happened, many people died. It was basically war. That possibly could mean, be the meaning in verse 8. But what another concept is, is in the Old Testament law, God equated human bloodshed with theft. He says, when you steal from another human being, when you rob another human being, you are depriving them of their humanity. And it is as equal to killing them with a sword. Woe to you who rob and steal as a means for wealth. You yourself will be robbed. Second illustration, in verse 9, he says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high to be delivered from the hand of calamity. Woe to the person who not only uses uh, his robbery as a means for wealth, but he uses his greed as a means for security. That's what he says. He says that these people have unjust gain. The idea here is someone who would weave garments and they would weave some sort of cloth, and they would, before selling it, they would kind of cut some of the cloth and sell a lesser length than they originally agreed on. That their greed would be hoarding resources and hoarding possessions because they think that in their possessions, in their greed, in their desire for things, they actually have security. That's woe to you who thinks that you will get security by the things that you get. Because he says in verse 10, you've done a shameful thing for your house. You've cut off many peoples. You are actually sinning against yourself. Woe to you who rob to get wealth because you will be robbed yourselves. Woe to you who in greed and covetousness always wanting more 
will actually use possessions as a means of security. Because in reality, you are sinning against yourself and it will lead to your ruin. He says thirdly, in verse 12, Woe to him who builds a city in bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that people toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? The robber seeks wealth, but it leads to his own being deprived. The the greedy person seeks possessions for security, it leads to his own ruin. The violent person inflicts oppression and pain on other humans for prominence and for prestige to, as it says in verse 12 and 13, to build his own city, his own place of renown, his own place of prestige. God says, your pursuit of prestige. Hear this. Your pursuit of prestige and prominence and reputation, it will exhaust you. It will exhaust you if you pursue your whole life. Because your and my Pursuit for significance is like a drop in the bucket. Verse 14. The earth will be filled with who? With the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Your pursuit for wealth, it will lead to your theft. Your pursuit for possessions and security will lead to your ruin. Your pursuit for prominence and significance through violence or or through oppression, will exhaust you. He says to Babylon. He says to Judah. He says to Habakkuk. And he says to us. Verse 15. This is the fourth woe. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom, even to make them drunk, so as to look at their nakedness. This is a very interesting judgment oracle. Because he's not directly saying, woe to you who drink, woe to you who indulge in alcohol, woe to you who indulge in sensuality. He's saying, woe to you who manipulate the human being to make them drunk so that you can expose their nakedness. Woe to you who will abuse the human being and in your sensuality misuse them for your own pleasure. Because what will happen in verse 16? You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. You yourself will drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup is in the Lord's right hand and it will come around you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. Your pursuit for pleasure that involves us abusing other people around us, whether it is in our mind, whether it is the things that we watch, whether it is in the people that we are around, our abuse of people for our own pleasure will make us exposed. Our desire to use people will expose ourselves. Verse 18. This is the fifth illustration. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork. And he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! Or to a mute stone, Arise! That's your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all 
inside of you. Woe to you who uses this wealth, who uses this security, who seeks his prominence, who seeks his pleasure by oppressing other people. And in this last woe, he kind of summarizes it. Woe to you who through your own hand will carve and craft an idol. Put your trust in it. A piece of wood, you'll say, awake and arise. But don't you know that there's no breath in it? Don't you know that the idol doesn't have life? You're trusting in in the very skill of your hands. And if you know yourselves, as well as I know myself, the skill of my hands is not too good. The best possible life, the fullest life that we could ever live in the midst of injustice is the righteous life. But, But this is how it plays out. Well, we need to take a pause and step back because the righteous life is not just about avoiding robbery to get wealth. The righteous life is not just about avoiding greed to actually get security and possessions. The righteous life is not just about avoiding this prominence and prestige. The the righteous life is not just about avoiding sensuality and pleasure as a means to, to fulfill ourselves. The righteous life is not just about avoiding idols. In fact, what Habakkuk needs to learn is righteous life is not just about being right. The righteous life is not just about being declared right before God. But the righteous life is about setting things right in the world around us. And so righteousness is not just about not robbing, but about enabling people through our own wealth, to prosper in the world. And Habakkuk learns that righteousness is not just about avoiding how to be greedy, avoiding how to be covetous, but it's about being so passionate and zealous for the honor of another person that my possessions become their way to get by in life. And the righteous life is not just about not being violent, not being rude, not being oppressive physically to human beings, but it's, it's about me actually pursuing the prestige and prominence of the other person. And the righteous life is not just about not being sensual and not indulging in wine and not indulging in immorality sexually. It's about enjoying deeply the pleasures of life so the rest of the world wonders why you enjoy them so right. Enjoying them, though, in the boundaries that they were created for. The righteous life is not just about not having idols and not worshiping vain things. The righteous life, this is what it comes down to, the righteous life is for you and I to realize that we are to be the representations of God in the world. Hear me on that. All of these woe oracles build up to the last woe. We talked about it last week briefly. We said that Habakkuk had a problem. He said, why in the world are you letting the Babylonians treat us like fish? We're humans. Your judgment on us is going to make us dehumanized. We're treated like fish. And then these Babylonians are going to go and sacrifice incense to their net and give praise to another god. And we talked about two important aspects. Injustice and idolatry. And tied up in idolatry is this reality. 
when we place other things before God, we not only have the indifference towards God, we not only de-deify God, but we dehumanize ourselves. In all of the Old Testament, the people who were to be the presence of God, the, the people who were to be the representation of God in the world, were us. You see, idolatry is a big deal for God, not simply because He's fearful of being replaced, Idolatry is a big deal for God because you and I were to be that representation. You and I were supposed to be that exact image of Him so that when people saw the way that we enabled people through our wealth, when people saw the way that our greed was transformed into zeal and passion for another person, when people saw the way that our violence was transformed into actually seeking the prestige and prominence of another person, when people saw the way that we drank deeply from the pleasures of life, but within the boundaries of the way it works, people were supposed to see God as He is. The righteous life is the best possible life you could ever live. But not just to avoid evil, not just to be declared righteous of evil, but also to be performers of righteousness in the world. To set things right to stop the oppression, to look at your relationships and reconcile them, to undo the lies, that the web that we've created with the lies and how we function, trying to hide ourselves in security, trying to hide ourselves and our prestige. That's the best possible life we can live. That's the righteous life. I remember, as we got home in June, and a lot of things were very fuzzy in my mind. We found ourselves in the top of Lancaster General Hospital in uh, the room of our specialist doctor, obstetrician. And um, we were unaware of the particular uniqueness of our twin girls. Uh, the uniqueness of them was that they were basically in one sack and at any moment their umbilical cords could tangle and they would strangle each other. Nothing was wrong with the twins except for they didn't have a membrane dividing them. And he began to talk to us. He was a very great guy. And he gave us some of the statistics. He said, actually, in Africa, they're very used to twins. Uh, some of the genetics of how it works, Africans just, they just produce a lot of twins, statistically. But the reason why they probably weren't shocked at seeing no membrane between the two walls is because they're used to twins. And the kind of twins, he said, that you have, would never make it past three or four months. And I sat back. And I began to contemplate, why in the world am I here? Why in the world am I here when nearly a week and a half before we got evacuated from our village, one of my wife's good friends just gave birth to a kid in her mud hut by her mother-in-law? What makes me have the right? And as the months went on, I began to sense this, this entitlement about myself. This desire that, yeah, I want the best medical health for my kids. Yeah, I want the best treatment for my kids. Yeah, I want the best doctors to look at my kids. But somehow it was so easy for me to forget that the place I just came from, my twins would not have even made it three or four months. Why 
is this the case? Simply for the fact that I was born in another country. And what I began to ponder was that through all of what I have been given, in the midst of injustice happening there, in the midst of injustice happening here, as the fog began to become thick everywhere in the world for me, I began to realize that this opportunity to receive this attention and care for my kids can't turn into entitlement. Can't turn into a satisfaction with simply what I receive. But has to find its feet in those around me. That the righteous life is not just about our good. It's not just about our holiness. It's about setting things right around us in the whole globe. In the neighborhoods in which we live. And in our very families and midst. The righteous life. The best possible life. Wine, sensuality, violence, oppression. It will betray you. It will betray you. But the righteous life, it will give its dividends. Father, Son, and Spirit, thank You for grace and mercy and compassion. Thank You for the forgiveness of sin. Thank You that we have, through Your Son, been declared righteous. Thank You that through Your Son, we have been in part made righteous. Would You please enable us to be instruments of righteousness in those around us. Save us from our greed. Save us from our sensuality. Save us from putting things before You. And help us to be people who set things right in the world in our midst. We beg for this. It can't happen because of some guy speaking. Uh, He has little and feeble words. Your Spirit must empower and convict us Save us, save me from our sense of entitlement. That we would be righteous ethically, yes. Morally and judiciously, yes. But also socially, that we would set things right, look at the chaos, and we would correct what is going on around us. For the good of your people, for the sake of the world, and the glory of God. Hear us please, Father. Amen.